welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Christian Centre. Uh, right, uh, I hope you've enjoyed the summer period with um, looking at kind of at the person of Jesus and uh, sort of some things about him that particularly connect and move with people. And I hope you've enjoyed uh, hearing a few different voices and different styles. Um, some of you might remember uh, about 18 months ago when uh, Dave Hadley was speaking, we prayed for Dave, but as we were praying for Dave, we also prayed that um, God would uh, kind of increase um, the desire and the gifting of others who might want to teach amongst our church family, and we prayed that God would kind of uh, do something in that regard. And I just reflected in this last week that I think kind of, if I think over the last couple of months, over the summer period, can see some real evidence of God sort of answering those prayers and um, more amongst us growing in their desire and ability to preach, which I think is just something to be really grateful for. So um, I wanted to recognize that and encourage you to keep praying um, for more. Uh, for those that are growing in their preaching and teaching, and not just kind of on a Sunday morning, but generally amongst the life of our church family. It's something, I think, to be encouraged about and something to keep praying for. Uh, It's my privilege to finish off our summer Sundays this morning before we move into something new in the autumn. And uh, so I'm going to talk about um, Jesus and emotion I really hate my PowerPoint. That's great. There's some bits of my talk where my notes are on the PowerPoint rather than on my paper. So I had a brief panic five minutes ago thinking, I really hope Sophie's got it. But she does. So, um, yeah, I'm going to talk about Jesus and feelings this morning. Um, But before I kind of get into that, I just want us to look at three Bible verses together. There's no need to turn to them in your own Bibles unless you want to because they're just short verses and I've put them on the screen. But let's just look at these, these three together. So, first of all, Galatians. So, Paul is writing to uh, one of the churches that he uh, planted. And um, he's really concerned because they seem to be moving away from the message of Jesus that he taught them uh, in various ways. And in his kind of letter, which is full of heartache and arguments and that sort of thing. He says this, he says, My little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And what I want us to notice about this is kind of as he's wrestling with these uh, these Christians in this church and he, he wants them to grow into the truth of following Jesus. This is the image he uses of that journey. That it's an image, it's a journey of Christ being formed in us. Um, us becoming molded to be like Jesus. Okay, next one. 1 John 3, again, another letter where the author is concerned about the church he's writing to. And uh, we don't know for sure, but it seems that the church was probably a bit worried about um, what does it really, like, what is a Christian, really? And there were a lot of voices saying a lot of things. They weren't quite sure are we Christians? How do we know we're Christians? What does it mean to be a Christian? And again, in the midst of his letter, John writes this. He, he kind of comforts the church. He says, dear friends, now we are children of God. You know, you are children of God. It's okay. Um, but what we will be has not yet been made known. 
we've kind of got this heartache. We, we are Christians, we DNA Jesus, but we're sort of in between the times. And, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So again, the thing I want you to notice is that John says, again, the destination of this Christian life is that we will be made like Jesus. I imagine you're getting the point, but for good measure, we'll look at a third verse, um, my favorite of the trio, where Paul writes this. He writes about what it is like to live in the new covenant, what it's like to follow Jesus. And he describes it as we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That image is the image of the Lord. Um, So again, he, he sort of says this is the Christian life. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus, but beautifully describes it as a transformation from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another. Um, so the reason that I wanted to start with those three verses is just to re-underline to us um, that the Christian life is the life of becoming like Jesus, more like him. Every day, every week, being changed to his image, formed into his shape. And that um, must include every aspect of our lives. So we're to be formed into the likeness of Jesus in our behavior, in our actions and things we do, our thoughts, our spirituality, and our emotional life, and our feelings, the language of the heart. And my... um, Observation would be that it's not unusual for us to miss out the emotional bit um, when we think about being changed to be like Jesus and our pursuit of him. We may be really passionate about the transformation of our behavior. You know, we want to die to sin and live righteous lives, and that's brilliant. And we may be uh, passionate and convicted that Jesus needs to transform our mind and the way we think, and the thoughts, and, um, and that is also true and good. But we, we can miss that our emotions, just as much as our mind and our behavior, are to be formed into the image of Jesus. And therefore, our feelings, your feelings, my feelings, uh, matter a great deal. And um, I guess, sort of, I feel the need to emphasize, I feel, I think I should, whatever, the need to emphasize this, because it, it can be the case that emotions have sometimes been given quite short shrift um, in, in churches and, uh, and by various Christians. They've sometimes been talked about, I sometimes think they're talked about as if kind of at best they're irrelevant <laughs> and at worst they're sort of likely to lead us into sin or, or something. I just want to read you a short extract from um, a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. And there's a picture to go with it. Safety is the picture up, like the train. There you go. So he, he has this picture and he says this about it. 
He says, to support what I mistakenly believed about God and my feelings, I misapplied the following illustration. I thought my spiritual life should head down the tracks, beginning with the engine called fact, which is what God said in Scripture. If I felt angry, for example, I needed to start with fact. What are you angry about, Pete? So this person lied to you and cheated you. God's on the throne. Jesus was lied to and cheated too. So stop the anger. After considering the fact of God's truth, I then considered my faith, the issue of my will. Did I choose to place my faith in the fact of God's word, or did I follow my feelings and fleshy inclinations which were not to be trusted? At the end of the train was the caboose, and what was to be trusted least, my feelings. Under no circumstances, Pete, rely on your feelings. The heart is sinful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? This will only lead you astray into sin. And um, Peter Scazzaro finishes by saying this. He says, when taken in its entirety, the practical implications of such an imbalanced and narrow belief system are enormous. A devaluing and repression of what it means to be both human and made in the image of God. Sadly, some of our misguided Christian beliefs and expectations have, as Thomas Merton wrote, merely deadened our humanity instead of setting it free to develop richly in all its capacities under the influence of grace. I wanted to read you that quote because I wonder if that sort of thinking is, or that sort of approach is familiar to you, you know, like work out what the truth is, by effort of will believe it, and kind of either ignore your feelings or, or pull them into line. Um, I think it it fits with uh, some of the most common reasons that are given by Christians, I think, for um, uh, minimising the parts of being a human that are to do with feelings. So here's some of the most common reasons that I've heard or have been said to me um, for for why we perhaps don't take emotions seriously. Here's my list of, of what I've heard. You might have a different list, but... But the first one, you know, it's not about what you feel, it's what you do that matters. Um, I think sometimes we're just really eager to uphold the importance of being obedient to God, which is a good thing. Um, but in doing that, we've sort of emphasized that whatever we feel, the important thing is what we do. But smuggled in with that becomes this sense of what you feel doesn't matter, therefore. And perhaps, you know, the second reason is perhaps a more aggressive version of the first. You know, feelings are just an excuse. You know, you, you haven't done the right thing because you feel, blah, 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 whatever you feel. The point is you haven't done the right thing and your, your feelings are an excuse for this. It's just excusing our disobedience. Um, you know, stop going on about your feelings. You've got to make a choice is the sort of tone of this way of thinking really and then sometimes this can be buttressed by appealing to our favorite proof text i believe in the high view of scripture that the bible does reveal what's true to us but we have to um, take the bible in entirety and proof texting can be a way of taking a little bit of the bible normally out of context and making it say what we want to say and this is what can happen with these sort of verses say you know somebody has said to me before well, Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's clearly your mind that matters. If you change your thinking, that will sort it out. 
I have no doubt that's what Romans 12 says and that that's important. But if that becomes a pretext to deny the importance of feelings, then we are misusing scripture. Say to the Jeremiah verse that, um, that Peter Scazzaro quotes about, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. Sometimes that can be used to say, therefore, anything that you feel is essentially untrustworthy and, and doesn't matter. So these are kind of reasons that are given, that people say. But I, over the years, I, I've sort of begun to suspect that there's another set of reasons that people don't give, but are potentially um, equally, if not greater, reasons why we avoid uh, engaging with our emotions. So can I have my second list, Sophie? Here you go. Here's what I think some of the real reasons are, in addition to, to those. Feelings are just difficult and painful, often. <laughs> and therefore, um, it's just easier to avoid them, often. And what's great is if you can have a sort of back pocket spiritual reason to justify <laughs> avoiding painful feelings. Um, secondly, I think contemplating change, transformation at the level of our feelings requires a lot of humility, I think. And sometimes we just don't have that humility. But to really kind of dig into, open up our inner emotional life, uh, we'll always expose sort of plenty of our sin and our immaturity and our brokenness. And... Um, yeah, it's, well, it's painful and difficult, but also requires that humility, I think. To, you know, maybe especially if we've been ignoring it for a long time, you, you have to be willing to say, you know, maybe it would have been a good idea for me to pay some attention to this previously. Uh, third reason, I, feelings can be not just difficult, but scary, sort of. A sort of sense of almost like... Um, you know, the hole in the dam. If I start to engage with this, am I going to be overwhelmed by what might be there? Um, so I think that's one reason. And finally, uh, I just think we often don't know what to do. So when it comes to changing our behavior, we've often got a plan. When it comes to changing our thinking, we've often got a plan, or at least we can work out a plan when it comes to the transformation of our feelings, we don't have a clue. <laughs> and we don't have a plan. Our emotions seem complicated and messy, so we don't really uh, know where to start. And so I think these are some of the real reasons why um, sometimes, as Christians, we can be tempted to uh, sort of yeah, believe that emotions don't really matter. But... We started this morning by saying that the Christian life is all about becoming like Jesus, okay? Being shaped into his image. And Jesus was an emotionally vibrant human being. He was alive. He felt things. He expressed things. And if he is in this, as in all other things, our model, our example then he models and exemplifies an emotionally mature and alive humanity. And in the time that's left to me, the main thing I want to do is just skim through some of the Gospels and try and illustrate this for you. Um, 
And here's the bit where I'm kind of reliant on the slides rather than my notes, really. Say anger. Emotions do matter if we're going to become like Jesus. Here's a few examples. With all of these, this isn't like comprehensive. I've just picked a few examples that resonate with me of where I think Jesus displays his emotional life. So the temple incident, do you remember this? Turning over the tables of the money changers, making a whip, driving people out and saying, this is meant to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. It's a clear expression, emotions of anger. Mark 3, uh, he, he wants to heal someone on the Sabbath, and the rest of the people in the synagogue are not happy about this. And he's, he's grieved at their hardness of heart, and he looks around in anger at their hardness of heart. And my final example is the woes. In Matthew 23, he um, he's really had it with the Pharisees and he launches into a series of woes. Woe to you. Woe to you. If you read some of those woes, you have to kind of, um, you have to work very hard to deny that Jesus is angry. <laughs> Woe to you. Whitewashed tombs, you know. You who kill the prophets and who lay these burdens on people's backs, but don't lift a finger to help them. So anger is there in the life of Jesus. Grief, Lazarus, Jesus weeps. It's not clear if he's weeping because his friend died, or he's weeping because of the unbelief of the people, or he's weeping because other friends are upset. So we don't quite know exactly why he's weeping, but he's weeping. (laughs) He's expressing some, some grief here. The triumphal entry, so Luke, when he comes into Jerusalem in the week leading up to his death, and, uh, you know, they lay the palm branches down, all this, and he comes into Jerusalem, and he weeps, and he says, if only you had known kind of what was, what was going on, if only you had received me, but now judgment is coming. Weeps in grief. And again, the, the sort of synagogue. Oh, I've used the same example twice. Sorry about that. It's probably because it literally says he was grieved in the text. So it's a nice, easy one. Grieved at their hardness of heart. Frustration, indignation. The disciples say, Jesus is a bit too busy to see the kids. Indignant at them. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You let me see the children. Indignant on the boat. Um, he sort of fed 5,000 people, performed numerous other miracles. Um, and then he's on the boat and he's trying to teach the disciples about being aware of the teaching of the Pharisees. And he uses a metaphor. Jesus is always using metaphors. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The disciples start talking to one another about whether Jesus is worried about food. Jesus says, for goodness sake, I've just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. Why do you think I'm talking about food? Clearly frustrated at his disciples. The bottom example is my favorite. Comes down a mountain to find a a kind of demon-possessed boy and his father. And his disciples have been trying to drive out the demon and not had any success. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. First thing he says, how long do I have to put up with you, you wicked generation? Bring the boy to me. I'll sort him out. 
And then the disciples start saying, well, why, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we, you know? Well, sometimes you need to pray. So clearly frustrated. Sorry, Sophie. Yeah, next one's great. Compassion. Do you remember Jesus looks out at the crowd who have followed him? He's knackered. John the Baptist has just been killed. He's trying to withdraw to engage with his grief. He's tired from his ministry. But he sees the crowd and he has compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he, and he ministers to them and then gets away later. Same feeding of the 5,000. These people have been with me for, I can't remember, two days, something like that. These people have been with me for a long time. They haven't got anything to eat. I want to feed them. Widows, I mean, this is like the easiest emotion to find examples for <laughs> with Jesus. But the widow's son, you know. Well, I think, you know, Jesus, Jesus could have healed so many people, didn't he? But he didn't heal everyone. Jesus could have performed endless miracles but he didn't so why why did he raise this widow's son there's lots of people who had children die well the text says because he had compassion on her he was her only son he chose to heal her okay love rich young man a great passage for those who think that love can't coexist with you know directness, challenge. Rich young man, what can I do to be saved? Jesus says, keep the commandments. Rich young man says, I've kept them. Sort of, sure. <laughs> In a wink from Jesus, maybe. But he says, actually, one thing you lack, so your possessions give to the poor. But before he said that, Mark's text says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. Okay, so your possessions give to the poor. And then John's gospel just, um, you know, they, when Lazarus has died, they come and find Jesus and they say, oh, the person that you love has died. They didn't even need to identify it as Lazarus. Like, oh, the one that you love. That says something I think about Jesus. And also, of course, there's the disciple who wrote the gospel, talks about oh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It wasn't that Jesus didn't love anyone else. But people obviously felt, observed so strongly the particular love of Jesus that they're able to refer to it in that straightforward way. John 13, you know, it says he's got his disciples there, he's going to die. He says, having loved them, he loved them to the end. Loved them to the fullest degree he could. Okay, next one, what we got safe? Sadness, fear, lonely. Yeah, we're sort of comfortable with Jesus being love and compassion. What about these? In Gethsemane, Jesus is in anguish, sweating blood, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He says that, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Lonely, like, can you wait with me? Can you stay awake with me? I don't want to be on my own in this. When he lost John the Baptist, he says, I need to get away. Like, I need to withdraw and be on my own and Worn out, talked about that really. Even Jesus has enough sometimes, needs to get away from people. Is that it, Safer? Is there a sense of humour? If you haven't got a sense of humour, you don't talk about straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. Sons of thunder, two of his disciples he calls sons of thunder. I think this is just the like, so Jesus does nicknames, I think is the point. 
He calls them sons of thunder because some Samaritan village didn't accept Jesus. And so James and John say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy the village? Again, I think there's a sense of humor here. Jesus calls them sons of thunder. Philip and the 5,000, you know, they got the 5,000 people. And um, Jesus, why does he turn to Philip and say, "Uh, Philip, I think we should get some bread for these people. Can you imagine, like, being put on the spot by Jesus like that? I think this shows a sense of humor, as if Philip's got the resources to do anything about this. Okay. So there's a quick whistle through, and I'm going to finish, really, with, in, in a minute. But Jesus was in touch with his emotions. And as I, even as I whip through those examples, don't you feel yourself drawn to his aliveness? Well, Ignatius of Loyola, he once said this, um, you know, the glory of God is man fully alive, humankind fully alive. And I think what he was trying to capture was that God intends us to grow into all that he's created us to be and to enjoy and flourish in all aspects of what it means to be a person including our emotional life. You know, if you want to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it's going to cover your feelings. And, uh, yeah, so I'll just finish with one more reflection, really, of a different nature, which is to say that, you know, I've had the privilege now over um, many years of walking with many people who have struggled with their emotions in various ways. And... um, you know, for, for different reasons of maybe shut down or blocked out or not being in touch with. But seeing people go on a journey of letting themselves and Jesus in to what's really going on in the heart is um, there's no silver bullets, are there? There's no like magic formulas. But so often the deliberate choice to engage in that journey has brought life to people. Um, I think it's pretty common that we struggle with this. So you've got, you got, you got a double whammy, really. You've got the British repression and the Christian repression all at once. So that's a fairly potent mix. But I think as uh, I've seen people choose to let God in to that part of their lives, they have become more alive experienced real growth as people and perhaps found that life is a bit more worth living than they thought it was and sometimes even begun to suspect that God might love them more than they thought he did. So I'm going to pray in a minute um, just that this would land with you wherever it needs to land Um, but hopefully uh, you'll be aware through the autumn We're running uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course, um, which really is uh, based on these two books. So the one that I read an extract for and a book called Boundaries. And the aim of this course is to open up a door for all of those who want to um, explore this more. So the details are on our website. It's kind of Monday evenings, fortnightly through the autumn. And... um, yeah, uh, the evenings are going to be a mix of sort of some talk content, but also a chance to do kind of reflective exercises and to discuss 
this stuff. There'll be things to go away with and do as well, not only read the books, but there'll be stuff to go away and do. And the aim, yeah, is to open this door, really, for anyone who wants to, to maybe engage more with what it is to grow in emotional and therefore spiritual maturity and to invite God into those parts of our lives. Um, A few sort of practical things to say. You know, sometimes you think, oh, that might be good, but I don't really want to come and then be forced to talk about my inner life with some stranger who, um, yeah, you know, that would be ironic, wouldn't we, if we did an emotionally healthy course and made it emotionally unsafe (laughs) to do so. So just so you know, the kind of rule, the rule with this is that um, it, you kind of, you talk with who you book on with in principle. So if you book on as a couple, talk as a couple. If you book on with a friend, talk as a friend. If you book on as a small group, talk as a small group. If you are booking on as yourself and therefore won't have anyone to talk to, then I'll be in touch with you before the evening starts and maybe, um, you know, we can work out a, a, a small group of two or three people that you'd be happy to sort of sit with on the evening. So no one will be on their own. Uh, I'll be in touch with you about that. But also, there'll be no expectation of interacting with anyone you don't want to. <laughs> um, and the second thing I want to say is, is the cost is £30, which is basically covering the cost of the books. But if you're booking on as a couple, you obviously don't need a book each. So um, it's £40 for a couple. And if you already have the books, then will knock a tenner off for each book you have. So again, you can kind of negotiate with me um, about the cost. But yeah, this, I'd like to extend the invitation to you. There's about thought of 35 people booked on at the moment. And um, you'd be very welcome. Myself and my wife, Jo, will host it. Right, shall I pray? And then the kids will be back in a minute, won't they? And then I'll hand back to Roxy and to Ben. Jesus, we... I guess we're here because we're attracted to you. We're drawn to you. We love you. Many of us know you as our saviour, our king, our friend. And as we see the way you lived, it just lights that longing in our hearts. I wish I could be more like you. And I thank you that your promise is that we will be. We will be made like you. And that as we walk with you, you will always open opportunities and invitations for us to change. To know more of your life and freedom and goodness. So I pray for for myself and for all of those who hear this, that by your Holy Spirit, you would land this in our lives in the way we need to hear it. Lord. I pray that we would each sense a particular invitation from you in this, which might look a hundred different ways for a hundred people, but that you would invite us by your spirit to become more alive. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Amblecote Christian Centre. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website, amblecotechristiancentre.org.uk.